Amen. Church, it's good to be with you this morning. I'm so thankful for Noel plowing up the ground in prayer and our worship team putting us in the right atmosphere for today. So thankful that I get to bring a word to you today who are here in person and all of you who are joining us online. As Noel mentioned earlier, we are continuing a sermon series entitled Crosswise, where we're looking at different biblical perspectives in an effort to understand the meaning of the death of Jesus on the cross. And today we're looking at a text from Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And that church was in many ways like a modern church. It was growing. There were people there coming into new spiritual information, new spiritual knowledge. They were having different spiritual experiences. And they were trying to figure out what that all meant and where that was headed. And surrounding that church is a secular culture that regards its beliefs and practices with a mix of suspicion and derision. And for his part, Paul is concerned because he thinks that church may not have the right view of who God is and how the kingdom life is lived. And so this is in part what he says to the church. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Wow. Things just got real at Second Baptist of Corinth, right? Paul may not be invited back to preach next week if he keeps that up. And before we try to pick up what Paul is putting down here, let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you alone are the Word, and you alone have the words and the wisdom of eternal life. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us as we're gathered here today and speak through us as we are scattered in the world this week. Speak, Lord, because your servants are listening. And we pray all these things in the strong name of our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, one of the earliest forms of Christian art... It's not a sculpture, 
and it's not a painting, it's graffiti. It's this. Now this crude drawing was found on the Palatine Hill in Rome and it's dated to the first or second century CE. And the, the graffiti was etched into the soft plaster of something called a pedagogium, which was a building where young slaves were educated and trained to serve on the Roman emperor's staff. Now, as you can see, the drawing depicts a man with a donkey's head hanging on a cross. And the crucified man looks down on a kid with his arm raised, and the inscription reads in Greek, Alexaminos worships his God. And by many accounts, it is the earliest depiction of the crucifixion of Christ. And it was meant as a form of ridicule. Specifically, it taunts Alexaminos because he was stupid enough, he was repulsive enough, he was asinine enough to worship someone who had been crucified. Standing where we are, far removed from the actual practice of crucifixion, and steeped in 2,000 years of Christian history, it is nearly impossible for us to comprehend the surpassing shame of the cross. Bible scholar John Stott notes that Roman citizens, they were largely exempt from crucifixion because such barbaric treatment was considered unthinkable for a real person. It was a punishment that was reserved for the worst kind of offenders, murderous slaves or poor insurrectionists against the Roman Empire. And the Roman orator Cicero said that the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. They should never even have to think about, see, or consider the cross because it was so disgusting. Because crucifixion for the Romans carried profound social shame and grave public dishonor. Now, crucifixion was also horrible to the Jews, but for a different reason. Because under Jewish law, anyone who hung from a cross hung under God's curse. And thus, naked and exposed, bloody and battling to breathe, the crucified person met a publicly disgraceful death, cut off from God and cut off from the community of the faithful. Now, all this is to say that the cross has a long history of wretchedness, dishonor, and disgrace. And indeed, in our short passage today, where Paul's talking about the cross, he uses the word foolishness five times. And the Greek form of that word is moros, because the cross is naturally moronic. And despite knowing all of this, in his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul boldly declares, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Why would he provoke their sensibilities in that way? Paul is contending for the soul of the Corinthian church 
in the midst of competing, shaping influences against competing ways of thinking and living. And these two ways are captured in verse 22, where he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. Because on the one hand, there was the sophistication and philosophy of the prevailing Greco-Roman culture. And like the secular culture that surrounds us, that culture found it preposterous that anyone would even consider worshiping a crucified, convicted criminal that was executed shamefully in a backwater province at the edge of the civilized world. Because smart, secular folks in that age and in this age, they want something reasonable. They want something rational. They want something scientific. They want something provable and practical to believe in. And on the other hand, the Jews represented a more pious point of view. Like our prevailing religious culture, they sought spiritual information and spiritual knowledge and maybe a miracle here or there and some transcendent spiritual experiences because nice church people then and nice church people now, they want something positive, they want something uplifting, something encouraging and manageable to believe in. And neither camp wants the cross. And whether we want to admit it out loud or not, we know exactly what they're talking about. Because we all know what it means to be pious in the pew on Sunday and materialistic in the mall on Monday. We're all a mixture of Jew and Greek, of secular and spiritual I mean, have you ever tried to explain the cross to somebody at work or somebody at school or somebody at the gym and somebody at your neighborhood? They look at you like you have lost your mind. And in that moment, the cross, it's almost embarrassing. Because just as it was for them, it is for us. The cross is a stumbling block. And it is foolishness. And that term stumbling block is important. In the Greek, it's scandalon, from which we get the English word scandal because the cross, the cross is a scandal. It is offensive to religious people because the cross stands in the way of polite spirituality and a gospel of niceness. The gospel obliterate, the cross obliterates any notion of spiritual self-help or material prosperity. It's an obstacle that simply will not let us make a tidy leap from sin to salvation, to hop from hubris to humility, to glide from guilt into glory. Jesus brutally nailed to the cross means that there is no easy way to let ourselves off the hook for the evil that's in the world and the darkness that we do. And the cross is also foolishness to the wider world because out there, money wins. Status wins. Success wins. In the broader culture, salvation is seen as self-actualization, five-step formulas to a happy life, and the trinity of beauty and bounty and leisure. And for the world, a bloody cross is just so unnecessary. It's so negative. It's so ridiculous. It is foolishness. 
because left to our own devices, ancient Jews and ancient Greeks, the Corinthian church, this church will desperately cling to a fiction that claims, in the words of theologian Richard Niebuhr, that a God without wrath brought humans without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. But Paul wants more for the Corinthian church. And he wants more for our church. He wants them to look directly at the cross. He wants them to behold the cross. He wants them to believe the cross of Christ. Because to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because at the cross, God upends all of our common sense notion of how things work in the world. And he puts the majestic reversal of the kingdom of God on full blast. And here we see Paul at his most prophetic, destroying cultural arguments about what really matters, pulling down proud philosophies that would smirk at the Son of God, and taking every thought captive about what makes for a good life and making it obedient to Christ. Paul wants the Corinthian church and he wants us to focus on the cross because on that lonely hill outside Jerusalem, in that shameful spectacle, Christ was demonstrating what God's true and powerful love looks like, what tenacious love looks like, what transforming love looks like. Because at the cross, Jesus shows us the way and he goes all the way for us to the very depths of the grave and the very gates of hell to restore us to life with God. At the cross, Jesus died the death of a slave, a pariah. He was regarded as a nobody. And there, he drew near to every single person who has ever been cast out, ever been rejected, ever been discarded, ever been told, you're nothing. Jesus became a nobody so that we could see that we are somebody to God. And he wrapped up spiritual orphans like us and made a way for us to be adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. Because that's what love looks like. At the cross, Jesus died as a vulnerable victim. And so there he drew near to all those who have been abused, all those who have wrongfully suffered, near to the oppressed and the exploited, so that they could see that the Son of God stands with them, that the Son of God is for them, that the Son of God is one of them. Because that's what love looks like. At the cross, Jesus died as a criminal. And there he drew near to every oath breaker, every promise breaker, every rule breaker, every law breaker. The innocent one became guilty so that we might be declared righteous before a just God. Because that's what love looks like. At the cross, Jesus died as one cursed by God. And so there he drew near to all the sinners all the selfish, all the hypocrites, all the religious pretenders and the spiritual posers so that we might be made holy 
and stand before a holy God. Because that's what love looks like. And at the cross, Jesus gave up his divine rights, privileges, and protections. And he drew near to all those people who have power and have influence. Those who have a lot to lose. Those who call the shots and who are accustomed to certainty and comfort. And he invites them to take the risk of faith. To stand with him as he stands with those who cannot stand for themselves. Because that's what love looks like. And so at the cross, Jesus, with full knowledge of all our frailties and failures, our weaknesses and wanting, our sinfulness and shame, Jesus drew near to us and gave himself up for us. Why? Why would anyone do that? Now, on this point, Paul is so crystal clear that it is impossible to misunderstand him. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because the cross is what God's power and God's love looks like. In the suffering sacrifice of the Son of God, it's made clear that we can't enter the kingdom of God on our own merits, on our own steam. We can't earn it or learn it, and it can't be bought or taught. It's a generous gift of grace that can only be received through repentance and then opened by faith. But there's another more personal point here. In this entire sermon series, We're not merely proclaiming theological truths about who Jesus is because of the cross. We are claiming our own identity. We are claiming who we are because of the cross. As Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Because at Calvary, the crucified Messiah calls forth a cruciform church. And thus receiving the gracious gift of the crucified Messiah is not merely an isolated act of faith. It is the first step on a vibrant life of faith. As those saved by the cross, we must be shaped by the cross and live in a manner fitting to the way Jesus died. In service to others. In sacrifice to God in risky and sometimes even dangerous love. Bible scholar Stanley Hauerwas puts it so well when he says, for the church, the church is finally known by the character of the people who constitute it. And if we lack that Christ-like, that cruciform character, the world is likely to draw the conclusion that the God we worship is in fact a false God. Because whatever it does, and wherever we go, the church is always witnessing to an ultimate reality. When the church fails to follow and embody the cruciform Christ, when we don't suffer with the suffering as Christ did, when we don't serve others, when we don't sacrifice our security for justice and righteousness as Christ did, when we don't love our enemies as Christ did, the church denies the reality of Christ. 
and to a watching and waiting world, the crucified Christ will only and ever be as real as the cruciform church is. So is the cross foolish? Is it hard and hard to understand? Is it sad and miserable and negative and painful? Is it sordid and ugly and shameful? Absolutely. It is all those things and more. But, but, the cross is what God's love looks like. And it is the power of salvation for those who believe. And that makes the cross the most amazing good news in the history of the whole wide world. Amen. And now we have the opportunity to come to the table, the cruciform table, to join with the crucified Christ. So if you belong to the Lord, this table's for you, and you're welcome to come and partake. So please, whenever you're ready, come and get out of your seats. Come get these little devices here. They're tough to open. So take them back to your seat, open them up, and we'll all take communion together.